Welcome to Packet Pushes, the data networking podcast that goes strange places and meets strange people here at the fashion crime central of the IETF 99. I'm surrounded by the nerdy nerds who do the internet of internet. It's an amazing sort of an environment. Uh, you've never seen so many long grey ponytails in your life and there's uh, fashion crimes being committed for which just there are just no words. But that's great because that's our people. Uh, today I am joined by a crew who want to talk to you about in-band telemetry. So why don't we go around the table and introduce people very quickly, starting with Shweta. Hi, I'm Shweta. I work for Cisco. Um, I've been a code monkey at Cisco for several, several years. My name is Frank Brockners, and uh, together with Shweta, I'm shepherding this in-band OEM project uh, since the very beginning in 2014. <laughs> Long time then. Carlos Pignataro, distinguished engineer at Cisco and, and partner in crime uh, with my colleagues here and friends, uh, Shweta and Frank. Yeah, Cisco and crime, they kind of go together. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, in-band telemetry, give me, give me the, 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 the pitch, give me the elevator pitch. So consider you want to go and understand what your data does in your network. What is the best source of the information? Yep. Well, how well, about your data? So what you're saying is normally when we do things like ping and trashrat, we're actually out of band, right? We're kind of out of band, right? Yep. We're sending extra data, mm. and that extra data might behave differently in your network than yep. the real data that you're trying to monitor right. and look into. And I typically compare that to what happens on the road system, right? Mm. So... You can either have the police control and shoot your speed yep. with a laser gun at a given point in time, and yep. then you know how fast you were at one given point in time when they go yep. and shot you. No. Or in Germany, and under German, you probably swallowed that right away, um, we have a, a system, especially for trucks, or we're in the close to the UK, lorries, um, where we put a, a unit called an onboard unit, OBU, mm. which has GPS, GSM, whatever on board, and, and it, it monitors could, the behavior of the truck driver 24-7, whether he's speeding, or, whether or not, whether he's, he's taking resting, a rest, whether road. he's taking yeah. the correct route or not the correct route. So what in-band OEM does is it just creates an onboard unit for mm -hmm. every single IP packet. So up until now, we've done network monitoring, which is SNMP, where we poll. Maybe if we were lucky, a little bit of arm on. Maybe we do some CLI scraping. That's monitoring, right? So... This is more what I define as telemetry, where we're going beyond this sort of pole push. And ICMP is really not in band. It's mostly out of band. The, the technical term for what you're describing yeah. is piggyback telemetry. Piggyback telemetry. Right. right. Essentially, you're piggybacking metadata yep. on actual data packets. Right. And using that for telemetry. Well, and, and, and not, not exactly right, right? If, because I was corrected when I came here mm. that... No, 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 no. This is, if you follow RFC 7799, right. so numbers are important, it is hybrid OEM type 1. Oh, really? You know, initially, Greg, we, we, we call this in-band OEM, right? And, yeah. the, and, and there actually is an RFC which defines the terms in-band, out-of-band, hybrid types of OEM. Right. Active which is why our passive. technical term is uh, piggyback. Right, piggyback. Right? Um, I'm that's why to... we call it in situ. We maintain the uh, acronym, but but it's not mm. in band. And Frank is so right because, you know, we got burned with that one. So what RFC was that again? Let me make a note of that one. Uh, RFC seventy-seven ninety-nine ninety-nine, which is all about terminology. That must be just a bundle of fun. 
This must be one of those RFCs that uh, is used all the time. Well, terminology is important, right? <laughs> Clearly, yes. So inbound telemetry is uh, we have data packets going from servers onto the switches across a backbone. Now, mostly where we see this talked about today is in the data center. And we've also seen some discussion around it coming into the campus as well. But basically what you do is it goes into the switch or maybe even as it ejects from the server, we add a tag to it or of some sort. Not, a shim. A shim. Oh, metadata. Not, not dissimilar to MPLS tags. No. In, no, no. in principle. It's some bits in the field. Which that, doesn't influence forwarding. No, because the device in the middle is only reading the source destination of Mac or IP, right? So it's a shim just like MPLS or a VLAN tag or some other mechanism. So it's not... Uh, we're not changing the known universe at this point like MPLS or VLANs were back in the day because you were heinously offending, you know, uh, everybody by changing the Ethernet frame or the IP packet format. Yeah, we're we're not changing the way or we don't want to change the way packets are, forward, are forwarded. We're just the entire idea, right? You right. want to monitor what happens in your network today and you want to go and understand how the packet really traverses your network as opposed mm. to you You think you know how it traverses okay. the network. So, and um, so we don't want to go change the forwarding. We just want to monitor how the forwarding of the packets happen as opposed to how the devices perform. You mentioned SNMP mm. earlier. That's largely to monitor how well the devices perform. Not the traffic. Not the traffic. Yeah, so we can't actually monitor the traffic itself. We can make do some extrapolation or some interpretation of the data, yeah. you know, if the box isn't hasn't got an overloaded CPU, if the interface isn't at 100%, if the buffers are empty, then traffic might be flowing freely, might. And it might not. be flowing the way that you believe it's flowing, hmm. as opposed to you know that it's flowing that way, right? Yes. It's the same question, like, I'm using traffic engineering, traffic steering, segment routing, blah, blah, blah. Do you actually know that the traffic is following no, that way? No, your well, average you routing protocol it, right? is, is a like best guess. It's like military, right? Yeah. You tell something and... Is it actually executed on? I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, that's promise theory. You know, you tell a teenager Correct. what to do. Yeah. Is the teenager doing what you asked it to do? Mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. So, um, what in the standards work that you're doing? What is like it that you're? I like the promise theory, by the way. Sorry, I like the promise theory. Um, yes, correlation here. Yeah, the like promise theory. I, I, the more I work on promise theory, the more I think that it's um, less relevant to networking than other people would think. Okay. So I think it's it's far too abstract. And the lack of feedback loops in mm-hmm. principle leaves you open for uh, negative outcomes. And people in networking have consistently ignored the feedback loops for decades and therefore promise theory is likely to be our downfall. But that's another discussion for another day. Okay. So let's talk about inbound telemetry. So um, what we're doing then is adding some sort of a shim, some sort of a tag, some sort of impost onto the packets or the frames as they traverse the network infrastructure. How does that turn into telemetry? Well, I mean, so when you add the tag, you're essentially adding a container to the packet, right? right. That container allows you to include metadata. Right. So as the packet goes traveling hop by hop through the network, each node is going to append or write metadata into that container, mm-hmm. which in turn is part of the in-situ OEM. Mm-hmm. And that metadata is going to include things like my identity. I'm, I'm this node, right? You find me as this uh, I'm the source identity. server... I'm, I'm, the, I, I'm this IP address, this for example. The, then it, so the packet came in on this interface and is living out of that other interface. And, and I this saw device. it at this exact time. Yep. Uh, and my queues have this specific depth when I saw the packet. Uh, and I'm and, and this is me, right? I'm mm. router name. 
And so I could include, so I could say I came from this server or this VM because I could put anything in that metadata perhaps, you, right? That is right. And I you, went through this switch and then this switch and then this switch. So that, that header could grow as And, as and you can say, you know, in between switch number two and number three, there was this specific delay. However, mm. in between three and four, there was more, more delay. So, for example, if you have uh, uh, your troubleshooting a, um, uh, you know, uh, delay uh, problems yes. and you have 200 milliseconds of delay end-to-end. -end. What this allows you is to identify the segment or the pair of nodes in between which the majority of that is happening. Yeah, right? and in the old days we would go and put an arm on probe on every WAN link and try and... You could do that, right? So you can do the exact same thing with by networking. just probing every single network device mm -hmm. and trying to identify putting a fingerprint onto the packet, trying to identify to the packet and then understand where that packet goes through mm -hmm. the network and then off-box correlate all that information. Well, you could do it with NetFlow, but then you have to capture NetFlow for the entire device. For the entire device and for all devices Everywhere. in the network. Every device, in the, and, every device that's in the path. And you need to go and correlate off-box. Yes. For data rates that so are really high. So if you have high, 200 right? boxes in your network, you've now got 200 NetFlow sources that you have to... And you need to go and correlate all that. Uh, yeah, put if it all into the database. put it yeah. all into the packet you're automatically correlating that information mm. because, well, it just the packet assembles everything that is for the packet. So by def I may not necessarily do this to all of my traffic. It might just Correct. be something that I would turn on for specific packets mm -hmm. or specific flows that I want to do And we have a specific with. use case for that. Okay. The trigger one, Shweta. No, what we just described is what Microsoft Everflow tells, where we do the port span of packets at multiple locations in the network and then do the correlation mm -hmm. outside. Instead of us, which we were in ban OAM, gives you a correlated information about the entire path with measurements at every hop that uh, uh, that that we can uh, we can get the correlated data out mm. uh, in the same metadata uh, about the triggered uh, in ban OAM. We don't have to do it for all the packets. We can trigger the collection of data, yep. uh, insert this metadata at the edge when we observe some events. The events could be that. Uh, we suddenly see that there is... Uh, uh, so, Inman OM has this other part where we can do proof of transit, where uh, we can figure out whether the packet made through certain checkpoints in the network. Uh, I'm just giving an example. Yeah. So, now if the packet didn't make it through those checkpoints, that's mm. when we can turn on this additional metadata collection so that we know where the packet is uh, uh, heading to, where, where, why it is missing the checkpoints that yep. we intended. So would you configure, you're suggesting now that we would configure the switch and say if I match this, then start injecting the telemetry tag. Do you call them a telemetry tag? Yeah, we do that. Yeah? that that's exactly the way we do it, right? So you, you would imagine... Is that the right terminology, telemetry tag? Uh, we call it the in-band OEM uh, trace data. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well. That just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, you have to no, work. You need some hipsters to start. There's an acronym there. You need a bit something. You know, Maybe you can help us with another terminology draft. Um, <clears throat> yeah. No, but that's exactly how it works, yeah. right? So, like, imagine you experience your some SAP sort of, traffic has some the, issue the, the, and the then you say, well, The use case that's often talked about is the data center, mm -hmm. right? And we now have these ECMP spines. So let's say you've got uh, a 12-way spine your packet can come from your leaf and take one of 12 possible paths. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck sorting that out with the ping, right? Because oh, it's ping, really easy how you, you know, do that today, right? They, if you have 12-way ECMP yeah. and you want to go debug that, yeah. you're shutting down 11 of these 12 <laughs> links and try to figure out, does it still go through? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Next link down. Yeah. 
And this is obviously non-intrusive to that's your exactly network, right? right? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, you've still got you've got resilience. You know, you've only shut down eleven of them. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, if you don't want to go do that, yeah. what other options do you have, right? And um, what we found, and um, Pedro Lavpukov from from uh, Facebook even has hmm. a draft out of that. He's saying, well, I'm, I'm running probes today yep. through my data center network where I'm probing the entire network on the application ports that I'm really interested in. And if I'm seeing a failure of the probe, what he does today is incremental trace route, yes. trying to nail the problem, but that's slow. Yes. What we have within Band OEM Defined now is we have a loopback option where on probe failure, you're adding the additional in-band OEM information to the packet. And that in-band OEM information also contains a loopback indicator that, that at every single intermediate hope, uh, hop that is yep. traversed, you're also sending a copy of the packet back. And that means with a single round-trip time, yep. you can detect that there was, well, something happening somewhere in the network and you can yep. nail the location of where that something happened. Yeah, because it happened. could be one of, like if you've got a 12-way spine, it could be one of the 12 switches that's faulty. Dropping exactly. packets, say, maybe... In the worst possible case, occasionally, maybe 1% of the day, it's dropping packets for some reason, maybe a faulty SFP. Mm -hmm. In a 12-way spine, that's an almost impossible thing to debug. If the counters, you know, the SNMP might be polling your, your interface counters, but you're not going to, if it's not showing up in the SNMP, you're kind of... Basically, with aggregate counters, like you're saying, you, you cannot debug it. You cannot right. be precise enough. Um, you know, when you send probes you run the risk that that is out of band with your real traffic. Well, the, one of the problems I had with probes was we kept, whenever we did an ICMP test or even an ICMP flood, you end up always load balancing onto the same link. Mm -hmm. Like it was always link four out of the 12. Because the host, because the load balancing algorithm is selecting, of course, you know, on, on some sort of hashing algorithm. That's right, you got it. And the pinging of the host would always, so in effect, I'm only testing one out of the 12. I wasn't even testing the other 11 because the hashing algorithm would always lay me onto link four. And that's the usual situation that you have as a network mm. operator, right? User calls, my SAP terminal mm -hmm. hangs. So could this work and you for the... Send it, you, you then say, well, I can mm. ping the thing. It's not my problem. It's not the network problem. You have something at application right. level. So the and use case is very data centric today. So we've seen people like Barefoot and, and Broadcom uh, and, I'm trying to think, and Mellanox uh, very heavily involved with their ASICs. They want to see this feature. Cause it, and I'm, I'm guessing that they're very keen to see it put out there because it drives silicon sales for them, right? That their silicon has this programmability feature and as it crosses the silicon, they can reprogram the frame and add the shim. Now, I'm sure Cisco's going to be able to do the same thing. They've got, you know, lots of programmable chipsets all the way across the board. So just Cisco hasn't been particularly, hasn't told me anything about that, but I'm assuming that they would. Now, um, so that's what's driving it is from their point of view is that they're going to be able to do this. But we could do this in the WAN or on wireless just as easily if we just waited for them to catch up or adopt this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another driver that we've seen early on is the overall NFV space. Mm. And that was a problem that one of our co-authors, Steve Ewell, uh, working for JPMC, uh, brought to us. And he said, well, he's in the financial business. And he said, well, yeah, hmm. we have a series of firewalls that we're traversing. Mm. We're sending traffic through a series of firewalls today. And I need to go prove to my management that the traffic really makes it through the sequence of firewalls. And today, guess what you do? You put probes and you check the cabling. Put a you packet sniffer, you build you, a... You demonstrate the cabling. Yeah. Look, red interface, blue interface, cabled correctly. Yeah. Good, bad side, all fine. How do you do that with NFV if everything is virtualized? 
Yes. Ooh, problem, right? Yep. Because a single misconfiguration of the switch, of the V-switch, can just simply make all the, mm -hmm. the firewalls be bypassed. So you, you got to go put some proof into the packet in order yeah. to prove that it makes it through the firewall. And again... I think so the flip side a, for a me is also a security validation. I need to confirm that the network is working as I intended, not, and not only the network, as somebody I, configured. So I, I can actually validate the networking configuration without having to go and look at what's being configured. But not only the network, I think, you know, part of the, part of the value proposition of, of the use case that Frank and Shweta were describing is mm. that this is on a service chain, right? right? So you're actually proving that your services are being traversed. Right. And the whole chain is being traversed. And if that doesn't happen, if the proof of transit tells you, okay, you know, that firewall was skipped, mm. then you can use that as a trigger to do the inbound and actually identify why that is happening. Right. So what does the, what does the tag look like? You know, I guess at the moment you're defined, what are the issues that you're running, aboy, running into in the working group? What is it that people are throwing down and making you angry about? I mean, uh, uh, building consensus around. So everybody is obviously uh, a happy bunny, right? So <laughs> yeah. the, the starting people love, point of, love these standards because like, everybody gets what they want, right? I think there's multiple <laughs> angles on, on how you can approach this. So, mm. so first of all, you want to have the same data formats defined for a timestamp, a node ID, Yes, uh, an egress. In the same e way as a, a routing yeah, database. And that should be yeah. independent on whether you're using VXLAN as transport or GNAV as transport or IPv6 as transport or whatever. Yeah. Um, so the starting point that we've done so far, and that's work in the IPPM working group, is to define these data fields. No. And define them in a uniform way so that they can be carried across multiple transport. Yeah. And then the fun journey starts. Yeah. Because then... Today, we have a draft that just gives, as a scratch pad, a couple of examples. This is how we can do it over VXLAN GPE. This is how we can do it over IPv6. This is how we can do it over GRE. This is how we can do yep. You name your favorite transport. <laughs> and, There's so um, many today. There's so many to choose from. Yes. Exactly. Um, so once we, we kind of zoomed and, and, and homed in on having these data fields standardized, mm -hmm. the fun journey will start because then you have to go and send your guerrilla troops into every single working group that defines yes. these transports. We haven't done that so far, yep. because right There's now so the many focus those, is on yeah. getting the data fields Yeah, you don't want, you don't want to, you don't want to expand then, the, the, the inputs until you've actually got something right. around which you can build a consensus, at least. Y yeah, you, you can't start. You don't want to go confuse people yes. unless you have to. Yeah. Um, so we, we built that first. Yep. That's sad. Uh, we've been very actively working on an open source implementation and mm -hmm. Shweta has been driving most of that as right. part of FIDO VPP yep. uh, where we have running code in IPv6 right. and we're using IPv6 extension headers for doing mm -hmm. that. Okay. Uh, That's just ooh. one example and there is a VXLAN GP implementation, there is an NSH implementation, all of that as right. open source. So reference. you're using an extension headers to contain the tags today? In IPv6, yes. Right. That uh, makes it nice and easy, I imagine. Right, yeah. and that, that's a feature for IPv6 which we should make use of uh, and it fits in very mm. well with, uh, with the hop hop extension header that we are using. Um, There's a fun debate going on as to whether yeah. to kill extension yeah. headers or not at the moment, actually, yeah. but they neither here nor there. Uh, the two major concerns with that is uh, uh, the packet leaking out of the domain where this hopper, if we do the header insertion, uh, that it, it could leak out. Yes. Uh, and um, there could be issues with ICMP errors reaching the host, which didn't add it and which would get terribly confused and yes. probably 
not know what to do well, with it. When you first said you were starting to put in tags and I was thinking about the metadata growing as it went across the network. Oh, that, that is there. I was starting to think how big the frame might get. But extension I, headers solves that because once your extension header gets to a certain size, you start fragmenting the IPv6 packet. Oh, well, there are, uh, there are so two did formats. Did I let a hand grenade off somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, there are two, two, yes. two uh, ways you can add this metadata. Mm. Uh, for the software data plane, we are doing the container approach where we add the container once and the mm. data gets accumulated as the packet traverses through so the network. So a fixed size container? Fixed con- fix Effectively, size. and so you can add data until the containers. Yeah, and the size of the container could be fi- fixed based on the path MTU of the network. Yeah. Um, however, uh, for the hardware implementation, this is really hard to do, to look mm. up inside the container where the next uh, location of updating data is. Yes. That's, that's hard to do. So uh, per the hardware implementation Does the hardware need to look into the tag? Is that the, a requirement? They, they need to look where to put their data in. Ah, right, they, yes. Right? So you're so, thinking that they, why would they read it? And right. The is, then, yeah. They need to just read the index of where they need to put the data yeah. in, which mm-hmm. is hard. Yeah. Uh, they need to have a fixed uh, position in the, uh, um, offset from the header to put this data in. Hence, we have uh, this other format called in- incremental trace collection mm-hmm. where the, the packet grows as yes. the packet uh, traverses through the network mm-hmm. because uh, that's simple to do in hardware. You just put the the data of that node right next to the header and grow the header. Right. And, and so you have a variable... That well, the, the header's variable length then, though. Yes. But IPv6 allows for that at some level. Uh, it... Uh, in theory, it did. Right. Yes. Whether it does in practice, we'll see. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, they have finally moved to standardise the IPv6 spec. It got republished as Uh, RFC 8200 this week. Right, and (laughs) that doesn't allow for header insertion and changing of the header size as the packet traverses, but but it was made pretty clear during the the call for uh, making it the standard that in future, if you have use cases to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, we will revisit that decision. Wow, that'll be popular. <laughs> well, but remember though that you know one of the virtues of of the whole in situ OEM is, the, is that it is encapsulation independent. Yes. You know, as as you know, Frank was saying, we define the container and we define the specific syntax and semantics of the data within it. Uh, after that, that container can be applied to IPv6 extension headers, to segment routing, to NSH, to VXLAN GP. All right, I see. Whatever. So what you're saying is, if I define a container format for IPv6 as a starting point then it could just be easily as carried in an MPLS tag or a, uh, an NSH tag or something You can else. even go more crazy, right? Mm. Um, a VXLAN GPE tag could carry the information as well. You can yeah, go as crazy as doing what people here would call liar violation, right? Mm. So just imagine you're running a VXLAN GPE tunnel over yeah. an IPv6 underlay. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily even need to go and implement in-band OEM in IPv6. Yeah. You can go and populate that information into in the, the VXLAN GPE header yes. that carries your container, right? Yeah. Um, same thing like even for well, media. That makes, there's actually a sort of sense to that. Oh, but yeah, because then, then, then the you switch. have underlay and overlay correlations. Yeah, then you have underlay right? and overlay, but then again, you're, you're also asking the physical switch. So in the overlay, it makes sense to do that because then your VMs and your operating systems can just make the change. But then asking your physical switches to modify the VXLAN header is uh, would would cause a crisis of the faith. You know? Which is why you have all the chipset vendors on board for that draft, right? So it's a long well, list of people. That's true, that and that's the interesting thing about that is that it does need this. If you're going to, we can do anything in software within certain limits, like modify the packet in software is 
at the very least, it's a CPU-driven thing. And so you're just waiting for big enough CPUs. But if you're lucky, you could do it in uh, the TCP offload engine. So in the silicon engine in the Nix. Is that right? I'm not in the, this is not my strength. I'm trying to... We could do that there as well, yes. Yeah. I think we're not doing that today in the current VPP implementation, yeah. but that could be something... That's that something we, that will come down in, in the yeah. future. And then the real problem is, is when you want the actual physical switches to modify the tag. So if you put it into the VXLAN header, can the ASIC reprogram that deep into the, pay, into the packet? So the, the implementation that we've seen so far mm. are VXLAN GP-based. Right. Um, so the, the chipset vendors that demonstrated things um, so far are all bound or, or focused on VXLAN GP. Yeah. Um, so seemingly it can be done, right? Yep. So for those of you who don't know at home, VXLAN GPE. So we talked about the VXLAN uh, format fairly extensively over the years. Um, GPE stands for Generic Protocol Encapsulation. So the idea is, is that you're instead of just encapsulating Ethernet into Layer 3 using the VXLAN um, tagging format, what you're saying is a generic process of encapsulating anything into VXLAN, and that means that the header format is different. The header format is different, and it is required in our specific case because mm. VXLAN is fixed format. That's right. There is no space to fit additional metadata. Mm-hmm. Um, so given that we're fitting additional da- metadata, we need that flexibility. And dynamically that... fitting additional metadata. Correct. You need, a, you need a very different header. Yeah, we need some header format that allows mm. for that level of flexibility, right? Yeah. If, if that header format is fixed... Well, there's nothing that we can do in order to fit metadata, so that means you either need to slap on another tunnel header that allows for that flexibility, or, or you're... You no, the VXLAN GP has been positively supported by a number of different people. They see it as sort of a, a generic encapsulation that we can extend. So instead of having a plethora of you know niche use cases, overlays, some companies are using MPLS over GRE, some companies are using GRE over MPLS, some companies are using... Network services headers. Some companies are pushing Geneva, or you know, or I think Microsoft's still pushing its version. Got its MVGRE. Um, you know, do we really need all of these unique encapsulations, or is there a way to make a universal one that is a generic protocol encapsulation? I think that's what VXLAN is reaching for. Although whether they, whether it's won that war yet is yet to be seen. The, the beauty of it, though, for the context of in-band, in-situ OEM, mm. is that it works with everything that you just listed. Right. And, you know, it doesn't need to even be limited to a single layer, mm. right? So within your network stack, underlay, overlay, you can actually have on a given packet in C2 OEM uh, shims at different layers. So you can have two of these and, yes. and, and start uh, doing multi-layer telemetry mm-hmm. in band on a single, you know, as the packet goes through on the flow and mm-hmm. then do the layer correlation. And, and that is one thing that is really powerful. Can I ask a slightly, I'm just going to deviate a little bit. Um, Jumbo frames, Ethernet frames, there's a maximum size for Ethernet frames. If we start pumping up the headers, assuming that the payloads are standardized, there's obviously a maximum amount of metadata we can tag at some point, right? That's it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we made Inman OEM so far a domain-specific feature. Right. Uh, There's also been a raft of discussion on the, the IPPM mailing list about that very fact that we make it crystal clear. Yes. Um, so you would have to have an, a jumbo frame enabled data center fabric. You have to have an, a, a fabric that is yeah. capable of carrying that information. Not necessarily jumbo frames, yeah. but um, if right. you look at current Ethernet chipsets, 
hardly anything is constrained to say 1536 but yes. mm. most of the people can go up to 1600 or a little further yeah. um, so I think that's something that you need to keep in mind if you're deploying these things yeah um, which is I guess why this pathway has been well 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 worn with things like Q and Q yeah an operator um, needs to have a certain understanding mm-hmm. of where how far he can go and what yep. he can fit in which is also to Schwetter's earlier point um, we, we define the maximum amount of the information that we can fit in, yeah. either by putting the overall array into the, the, the packet up front mm. or by growing up to a certain limit, right? Right. And that, that is something that you can... Sorry. Yeah. And, uh, and the data that we collect and the number of nodes data that we can collect is also flexible. We don't have to always fix the number of nodes that can insert the data or uh, the kind of data that is collected. For example, if you just collect the node... ID and interface information, mm. we need about eight bytes, uh, another four bytes for timestamp. Mm. Based on um, the intent of why this telemetry data is collected, mm. we can only enable the, the absolutely required data to be collected. Mm. And if your network diameter is, uh, say, eight, uh, eight into the number of the amount of data that we collected yeah, per yeah. node is what will be the size of the container and that we can play with. So yeah. that's not, I mean, it's the data format is flexible to play with that. Yeah, it doesn't strike me. I know some people will be, you know, having heinous fits at the moment because the MPLS tag at 20 bits was a, was seen as a criminal offence to, to well, ban it. was it. seen a criminal thing in the, the yeah. late 90s. Uh, yes. the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. The yeah. same thing, like, many people say, well... This is 791 route recording, right? Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. In a way, it's more flexible than route recording. And yeah. this didn't take off. It didn't take off 1983. Yeah, that's um, right. So There's a lot different now. Um, you know, you, you have to consider we're in a networking environment that have far more devices than we ever had before. So data centers used to have like a common data center that you would work in would have 50 or 60 switches. And it was actually wasn't too hard to just memorize all the IP addresses and telnet to them all. Right? But a modern data center now has a vSwitch in every server. And so now all of a sudden you've got a thousand vSwitches plus your 50 or 60 switches. For, you know, and it's, it's not all only changed. the data center, right? Um, it's also that enterprise architectures are moving towards, well, using overlays in a very similar way than what you see in data center environments, right? In order yes. to move to a completely flexible yeah, overlay the environment. Campus and the, we're seeing so SD-WAN the camp- use overlays to do... Everybody uses overlays switching. and yep. that creates the beautiful problem that you mm. don't know where your packets are anymore. Right. Um, and that requires some resolution. Luckily, at the same time, we're seeing that ASICs are becoming flexible enough yes. to do TLV-style processing. Mm. That was a clear no-go for the last whatever yep. century, right? Yep. And um, if you would have tried something like inbound OEM... Five years ago. A decade ago? ago? Oh, five years ago. We didn't have programmable pipelines five years ago. Well, in NPUs we had, but oh, yes. it, it came at a cost that nobody was able to chew up. Yeah. But right now, I think we're just about at yes. the time where we see TLV processing being enabled in vanilla A6 okay. at decent Explain to me points. what TLV processing is. Just to Well, type length vector right. uh, value in, instead of just having fixed format fields. Right. Um, and I think that's the breakthrough that you're seeing with chipset technology right now. That right. So what than you're actually saying is chipsets header, can write a data format, not just bit, bitwise operations yeah. on the header field. Rather than everything needs to, to be fixed. You know, if I, I move to the 128-bit point in the, in the frame header, um, I can then put, put these fields in. What you're saying is I can just take some values in the ASIC, we'll put it in as it's needed. And exactly. do the lookups for me in the... You know, and you've got to remember that at 10 gigabit or 100 gigabit, you have nanoseconds to perform these operations as the packet forwards across the fabric. 
like, you know, 120, what are those, 320 nanoseconds across a Mellanox. Mm-hmm. And if you're a low latency trader, that matters to you. Like, for me in the data center, you know, 600 nanoseconds, 300 nanoseconds, eh, whatever. But that matters. Those types of operations have... Oh, this matters. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, it matters for viability and marketing and volume and sales. But we do have all these companies like, you know, the Cisco UADP2 chipsets being very out loud about how that changes the nature of the campus and how that's going to enable them to do software-defined access. And that's all done with overlays where the traffic comes in at the edge, it's validated at the edge, the programmability, and then it's pushed into an overlay. So once it's in an overlay, it crosses the campus completely differently to the way that campuses operate today. Mm -hmm. But that whole overlay concept is very similar to what we've been doing in the data centre with, you know... We're just applying the same concepts, um, but in a in an environment that is far more diverse than a data center, right? Mm, So you're no longer in fixed apologies, everything is known. Mm. Um, No, I think you're in this kind of randomness of a a campus environment. uh, The campus environments, I think what's really interesting about campus environments is we've very much stuck with tree architectures because of spanning tree, and we've been driven towards stacking of chassis. And that gives us defined paths. That gave us an operational profile so that we knew where the packets would be going. Does you, you follow me? And what we actually wanted was meshed topologies. I actually have a building which is right next to, you know, building 60 is right next to building 75. But the cable trunks were run 25 years ago, so 65 actually connects by... Four. What we really want is full meshed architectures in the campus so the bandwidth can go east-west but we've always forced it to run in trees because of spanning tree. And I think the emergence of these overlays lets us start to run, you know, of, of L2 over layer 3. So the, now you can actually have campus nodes which actually just have dozens of outlinks to, you know, buildings wherever they need to be. And then they just choose the best path. So it looks a little bit like ECMP in the data centre in that there's more than one way to get to the destination. But the overlays flow may be unequally load balanced perhaps across all possible paths in a campus. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a hell of a transition for a lot of campus people, by the way. You know, it and will this be. is where your telemetry is. It gives you visibility into what the paths are that the data is taking. So if there's 10 possible paths for the data to come from the campus edge to the campus core, you need to be able to monitor the viability of all 10 paths, mm-hmm. in effect. Yeah, and you can take that even further by folding in wireless. Um, which is no longer, it's a fixed path and hmm. it's fixed forever. Like you, you put the road in and it's going to stay like that. But, well, things change because it's wireless, right? Yes. And that means, um, well, you, go, you, you need to go be able to eventually even adjust, the, uh, adjust or fold that into the routing metric uh, that certain paths are not performing like hmm. they were a couple of minutes ago so or like a couple of networking? hours ago. This folds into mesh networking. It could feedback it. I mean, the mesh networking, the IEEE group hasn't really been able to make mesh networking work, largely because they can't identify badly performing paths in the mesh. That's exactly the point that uh, I think the IT, uh, IEEE even discussed last week. Right. Um, so that people are seeing like, can we factor in measurements that are low profile, so not like requiring a load mm. of like, extra ping traffic or whatever, yep. um, that are usable in order to then optimise the routing behaviour of the network. Hmm. Because your average wireless AP is actually quite powerful, much more powerful than an average router or a switch, and they actually do a lot more telemetry or a lot more 
you know, path, what they do in terms of signal processing on the wireless is also substantial. So they're not foreign to this idea of telemetry and inbound stuff. You know, there's one thing that probably uh, also merits some some airtime, mm. which is uh, we are in the ITF, right? Yeah. And the, and you know, we started uh, the the storyline around what we're doing. We're just coming out mm. of the IPPM working group where you know we are presenting this and driving the standardization. So, you know, we started talking about the standards yes. aspect of this. I think it's also useful at this point also, Greg, to, you know, reel that back in and take the path of what we've done with open source, Mm -hmm. which was before the standards, uh, to the point that... You've proved this out with code. Proved this out with running code that is shared, that is open, that anyone can go and and choose. And again, Shweta driving most of that with with BPP. That's one area. And the other area, I don't know whether we can spend some additional cycles on in this overall kind of proof of transit thing, Mm. sort of making sure that... I tried to take you there, but then you kind of diverted. All right, sorry. Um, where, um, like, how do you ensure that the traffic really makes it through? Yeah. Um, because that's a non-trivial question, right? Um, okay. Because we, we put pieces of a cryptographic secret into the packets. Yes. We split that secret into as many hops as you want to go verify. Then either you can reassemble the secret at the very end in order to kind of check mark been done or not and there is running code and it's open sourced it is in vpp and open daylight Uh, people can use it as a reference so that adds a level of confidence and you can take it all the way to uh, the net neutrality you can take that carlos's question first and you can take that all the way to the net neutrality debate i don't know whether you want to go there yeah um because people are debating that right now Mm. on um how do you prove that a certain service is really how do you how do you have non repudiation? Yeah, and, 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 and I have that discussion with a regulator in Europe right now on how that's measurable. And people are kind of stuck with I will I'll send ICMP. Yeah. And you know as much as I know, a, if you go to speedtest.net, that's a false measure. You you get a marvelous performance and your broadband connection sucks. Why? Because because they're prioritizing probe traffic. Yeah, they yes. Very much um, so. so you can take it that way if you yeah. want so to. So we'll ask Carlos first about oh, one practical more. deployments. And there's one more from him. That's fine. What I'll do is I'll just keep going. I'll keep coming around. For, do those two and then we'll come down. Uh, maybe, I uh, know, I just want to see if you really want to ask this question and if Frank wants to um, take it up. Uh, applicability beyond just operational uh, measurements, the Comcast use case for, uh, do you want to talk about that? Where where you sure. used, use uh-huh. the data to do the path selection dynamically for, say, content delivery. So you have microservices in the cloud. Right. And yep. And That's what is the best microservice to pick from? Yes. And it makes it far more sense. It becomes very cheap to deploy microservice-based content delivery versus okay. doing the load balancing or enabling multicast or any cast in the operator's network. And she's done a marvelous demo mock-up for that at yeah. last ITF in Chicago, and maybe we can give her some more airtime. No, 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 no. Yeah. I I'll, I'll show let me start. No, no, because that's I'm that's talking fine. all the time. No, 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 no you're, you're, not, you're not. It's fine. No, but they're, they're related things, right? Sure. I mean, let, let me the, ask the first question, get yours out of my mind, because I've only got so much buffer. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, Carlos, <laughs> let me ask you a question about implementation. Is this actually how far along are we in actually seeing working code in this area? That that's a great theme because you know we, we are here at the ATF and we just came out of the IPPM uh, working group meeting where we're debating the formats and driving the standardization. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really interesting that much much before coming here we actually had running code which was contributed uh, to the open source community and you know anyone mm. can pick it up uh, from the FIDO, right. FAST Data I.O. or VPP. So this is all part uh, of the FD.io 
This is it's part all in of there. the FIDO code base, yep. exactly. Yep, which and that, um, for those of you who don't know, the FD.io is um, basically a way of improving the forwarding performance of software switching. So Cisco open-sourced its VPP, Vector Packet Processing, code, which has been typically what was previously in the Nexus 1000 software. And it was recognized as being incredibly fast um, in the way that it works. And we did a show on this a while back with the author of that um, project, and he talked about why that VPP engine is so fast, especially in relationship to lookup. So maybe you want to go off and look to that. So you're telling me that there's running code, there's examples of where that's working now, and it's actually been proven out. It's not, this is not just like a paper draft. There's actually real work going in behind this. You, you got it, exactly. VPP is not only fast, but it's also very flexible. Mm. And, you know, it allows for the programmability of, of these type of applications by way of plugins. Yes. Uh, you know, we talked about Shweta, drove uh you know most of the work on the uh on on making vpp happen and mm. for um in situ oem we um before we actually presented this we actually had running code and we brought that running code also to the itf right right so uh last um on the last itf in chicago we had a demo in situ oem together with comcast in in their booth yep. uh proving um you know, one application of in situ OEM, which is not only telemetry and not only passive, but it actually allows you uh, on, a, on a microservice cloud environment, it allows you to make um, active, proactive, uh, even proactive, uh, active and proactive decisions. Okay, so that's really interesting. So what you're yeah. saying is I've got, I've got this, I get really bent out of shape around feedback loops. I should not be blindly dumping traffic into the network and then crossing my fingers and hoping it gets to the other end. It all boils down to what I call predictability. My networks are not predictable. The only guarantee I get out of the network is zero, right? There is zero certainty that any frames I eject will get to the other end, right? Because I can't actively measure network availability. So this leads into what we were just talking about offline, which is this concept of um, load balancing or traffic path selection according to what the telemetry tells me. So this is actually a feedback loop. I can see this loop, this path or this you know, the signaling that I'm getting from my telemetry processing by injecting this header into the thing tells me that this path's degraded. Now I should move from path A to path B or something like that. Is that what we're saying? Right. Analogous to that would be a Google map analogy, Google Maps yep. with and without the color. Yep. Where earlier had the had the map, we knew mm. the route, we could figure out the direction, yeah. but there was no, um, it was not colored. We didn't know where the map was congested and we couldn't take early on decision to uh, mm. adapt the path based on how the network is behaving right now. Right. And uh, this has applicability beyond uh, just making the, the path selection or operational uh, use of how the network is behaving. Uh, one of the use cases that we have implemented using this was for uh, the idea came from Comcast, John Leddy and John Brzozowski. Mm. Uh, they want to deploy content delivery network using microservices, which mm. will um, greatly simplify the... So the, as containers, not, right, as, as, not right. as VMs or not as bare not, metal. Right? Yeah, not as bare metals with huge load balancers with any cast or multicast That's not intuitively something enabled. that you would do. Right? Right. Because CDN to me is all about vast pools of static content waiting to be delivered. It's not something that I would run in a container. Uh, but that will simplify. That that mm. will make it cheaper to deploy the 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 content or microservices. Mm. But how do we give the same kind of experience or reliability doing uh, de delivery of content using microservices? That's where we came in. Yeah, so just imagine microservices idea. Anything can fail. Yes. Anything can be low performance. So you have a hundred video pumps. Yes. Ten of them being dead. Yeah. 
How do you 50, know? 50 of them being overloaded. Um, 20 of them being placed in northern Mongolia. Instead of... So having a long delay between the video pump and you. Yeah. Um, so how do you pick the right one? Yeah. So exactly. And then how and do you that's... know... And so not only do you have to pick it, but you have to know if, it cha- if it's temporally challenged. Right. Changes over right. time. I'm really fond and of that word And you want to go and connect to that without f- a, a dynamic load balancer that sits in the middleman and then is yeah, redirecting your frames that's all what, the time, That's what right? all the microservices people are doing is they're creating what they call sidecars, which are proxies so that if the container that they're trying to get to dies, they hand it off to another proxy. And I'm sitting there shaking my head and going, we stopped doing this we 20 years ago. That, we don't right? do that, right? Because we, 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 we sliced up the overall video into small little chunks. Mm. Um, so two, three, four seconds, and yes. every three, two, three, four seconds, you're mm. connecting to yet another microservice serving you. That'll have another chunk And now let's go and make sure that we're always connecting to the best so microservice. Inbound and telemetry is a way of monitoring the performance of these, not just the network, but also the n- service at the end. We're going beyond that, yeah. because we're not monitoring, we are, we're picking the best microservice at a given point in time for you. Yep by inserting ourselves just into the TCP handshake, not in the overall traffic flow, just into the TCP handshake. So mechanism is you sent the TCP SYN. Mm -hmm. We're intercepting the the TCP SYN by something that Shweta calls the M-Anycast server. Yep. So it's like many casting, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're replicating that SYN to a a random set of servers, and we're embedding in-band OEM information into that. Yes. And... Then, well, the SYNAC will come back again with inbound OEM information. And in that SYNAC, you'll understand what the response time in the server was. Yes. Because you can tag the frame when it arrives and when it comes back right. from, uh, from the application. And then you can also race from the server to your Amanicast server. Latency. And then mm. you, you choose the best SYNAC, and only that one you send back to the client. And yeah. then you're using segment routing to steer the TCP act directly to the service, the microservice yep. that is best for you at that given point in time. Right. And you do that every couple of minutes. And the beauty of that approach is you're only in the TCP handshake. Yes. Actually, only in the two first steps so of the TCP right. handshake. So at that point, you're, so you're, you're not overloading got, anything. You've got you're no not frame sizing problems over the WAN, so you don't need to oversize your WAN. You don't have to, but your app has to understand. No, and your endpoint doesn't actually have to understand the response because you're, and you're, because you're intercepting the SYN-SYNAC Handshake, right. the setup right. handshake. Right. And that's the one thing that they have to know. You're not, inter- you're not fuddling with the fin finac because right. not everything does fin finac, finac. Not everything tears down clean. And you're centralizing just that steering, that initial right. conversation. And you're not and in the take, data path. Then, right. And yep. we take care of sending the reset for, for the non-selected servers and keeping mm-hmm. the state clean there as well. And then that, it's effectively that load balancing function or traffic steering function is then fed from the telemetry that you get in band. Right. So you're monitoring all the paths with, with and you're not, you're not necessarily telemetrizing every single client or every single, you, you, you would selectively. The way I've read some of the vendor um, propaganda around their use of in band telemetry is that they're all only suggesting 5% of traffic get telemetrized. And it took me a while to twig to the fact that um, what then, it's not a load issue in the ASIC, it's how much data you're going to get. Right. So if you have everything with telemetry da- tags on it, how do you then make use of that telemetry data? Well, it's pointless to try and telemetrize 100% of traffic because then you've got 
way too much data to make sense of, right? Is that fair? In particular, when you want to have these real-time feedback loops, you're going to yeah. be selective as to where you uh, you use like the NetFlow. data. You have to sample your NetFlow or you get... you got to be selective. On the other hand, there's nothing preventing you from, from going broader in terms of how many packets or flows or... I mean, potentially every packet can have uh, telemetry metadata in situ. Yeah. And, you know, that might potentially be helpful f- for offline processing to do capacity planning of your network, mm. uh, you know, where the aggregate of things go. Uh, but when you want these this, uh, uh, real-time feedback loops and decision makings, more selectively. And you've coded all this? Yes, in VPP. All this is available in, in VPP yep. on Fido. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, just to give an idea about the performance, uh, mm. um, the the VPP framework uh, is built in a way that uh, you need to write code that would perform. Mm. And uh, if, if you take an example of, uh, say, about 10 million packets being processed by a single x86 core with 3, three gigahertz, mm. um, you get a budget of about 250 cycles per packet. Right. And uh, uh, what we have measured is doing this in-band OEM operation takes about 20 to 30 cycles, which is well within the budget. And we can do it at line rate. Cycles, not seconds. Just cycles. For the, yeah, sorry. Cycles. It just can't, it hit my ears as seconds. So I just no, want to make no, sure no, people no. understand. Yeah. That's not seconds. That's cycles, cycles. CPU cycles. CPU cycles. Yes. Yeah. That, I just want to clarify that because that's actually a lot less than. <laughs> yeah, that means also the faster yeah. the clock of the CPU, the faster you go, right? Yes. And that's the thing about VPP and the way the data structures are formatted is that it runs very much faster. So but this isn't talks- just imaginary or, or vaporware. This is, you know, it's still proof of concept. It's not you know, deployable, roll it out. But if you've got crazy applications, you can start thinking about it. Now, VPP would then have to be in the container and then you have the Contiv project, which is implementing the VPP as a vSwitch. Is that right? So VPP is the, well, VPP yeah. is the fast forwarder or the yes. universal data pane, as people are kind of touting it right now. And Contiv is a way to go and configure it in a uniform way yes. uh, with a policy that mm. is group-based policy and could apply well mm. to switches routers and um, well, yeah. soft switches and points which yeah. is VPP. I've struggled, to, I've struggled to comprehend it's just fully. Contiv is quite difficult for me to comprehend fully. I haven't had enough time. Think to. of it in the context of an orchestration for the network layer of a, of a container-based cloud. Yeah, it's a microservices way of, configuration engine yeah, to a large the network extent. Layer. But it's, it integrates quite tightly with uh, FDDR.io or FIDO and, and which, right. use, which relies on VPP. Well, so you can choose pure, to. pure data plane. There's no routing protocol. There's no yeah. control plane in VPP other than the APIs yeah. it exposes. So Contive brings in that layer. Yeah, what Cisco's done here is it's put together a whole, um, an end-to-end sort of capability here to make this happen. It's not just, here's VPP, bye. It's, no, we turned it into a switch, FD.io, and that's out there and people are using that as a V-switch, which has its own, you know, positives and negatives. And then there's Contive, which does the orchestration. So people can actually... So that means that when you build this, you can actually build a whole functional unit, and, and not just look, an element. Look at the data center earlier on, right? You said, well, a data center is not only the switches, it's also the V-switches on the endpoints, right? And how do you make sure that you have a uniform policy applied across the entire data center network? So not only the switches mm-hmm. that you had with ACI so far, if you want to go and expand ACI all the way to the host, mm. you need to also be able to homogeneously defined policy all the way up to the the vSwitch endpoint. Yes, yes. And that's exa- actually what, what Contiv drives you to. But one important point I think that we, given that we're in the ITF and Carlos was mentioning that earlier on, is how open source and standards are really going lockstep here. Yeah. Um, because 
just open source wouldn't be really good enough mm. because you have one implementation and it's, it's one implementation of many. Um, at the same time, standards are typically like, mm -hmm. yeah, you have a standard and slow moving because when do you implement it? And ITF's old mantra was rough consensus, running code. Yeah. And we've been re-energizing that very much. Yes. When we went live and public in Berlin, round about well, roughly a year ago by now, apparently really, it was July last year, yep. um, we already have a reference implementation and not only a reference implementation in iOS because then everybody says, yeah, hmm, yeah nice, yeah, you've yeah. done that in iOS, you're shipping code <laughs> in iOS. Yeah. Um, no, we've done that as open source. As a, so, so and at the very same time, we describe what we've done in open source well, in, in, a a, in a bunch of ITF drafts yes. so that people could immediately say, okay, I, I follow this, this works, this doesn't work, this, this is how they implement things and even more mm -hmm. complex things. Um, mentioning the earlier proof of transit, like making sure that traffic makes it through the firewalls. Um, the algorithms behind that are relatively kind of diverse because mm. um, you're using methods like Shamir secret sharing mm. um, to go and embed cryptographic secrets in every, into every single packet. People say, how do you provision that? How do you operationalize yes. the whole thing? Putting we a secret said, well, into every packet or, to, to, or into every endpoint so that you could measure the connectivity. How do you do that, right? Yeah. And then obviously, well, VPP just as a working system is not enough because it's just the data plane. Yeah. You need something control plane. So, well, we've done an app for Open Daylight. Yes. So as part of the last Open Daylight Carbon release, yes. if you look at the SFC code, yeah. there is code that does... Okay. the verification of a particular service chain using proof of transit. Right. Uh, so we've put the overall system oh, so out the as a working system. proof of transit draft I was reading. That that's I only the got proof a, of transit stuff and that I you got nicely about, highlighted. I only, got a, only got a certain down, distance down before I got distracted, but I can remember reading it and thinking, I must finish that. No, and your yeah. latest blog on, uh, on open daylights, these are the highlights in Carbon. <laughs> you mentioned, well, yeah. we can do path verification using proof of transit. Yeah. This right. is behind it. So, so if in you that search, OEM so if you was go, your friend already. So people at home can go to the ITF and search for proof of transit and you can find the draft where this is done. And that's, But you're not only saying I can prove transit, you can cryptographically prove it. So we, can by, cryptographic, we, we can prove it in a crypto, crypto, blah, blah, blah. cryptographically secure? Cryptographically secure way, mm. which means we're taking a secret... We're splitting it up into as many hops mm -hmm. as you want to go verify. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a service chain. It can be any number of hops that you want to go verify. And then, well, we pick up the secret, pieces of the secret hop by hop, and we can either reassemble the secret, check, yes. or you can't. And, and the reason we want to do that is because we don't want the network provider to modify or uh, uh, optimize the query to make the network look faster than it is, like we do with speed test today. That's right? one so case, when you go to speedtest.net, the speed test site is optimized across the carrier's backbone. And, you know, I know it, you know it. Uh, I know it as a local test. It's not a very good test, of, you know, but... Lots of people don't. They think it's actually a valid measure. So, so that's the value of piggybacking the metadata on the data, right? Yeah. You're actually testing your... Uh, actual data, traffic. Your actual traffic. Testing the actual traffic as opposed to fake traffic or yeah. probe traffic, um, where that all comes down to the kind of right. net neutrality debate, right? So, uh, Well, it could, could be used in the net neutrality as a way. Like today they say you can't drop this many pack, you can't drop packets. And that's actually not what we want. We need to drop packets. So we need to be able to have some sort of in-band telemetry that's cryptographically secure for actual traffic to measure it. And that would be a way for a government body to 
in practically measure whether there's compliance or not. You could do that, right? Yeah, you could. Whether they're smart enough or to or not, who knows? That's <laughs> a different issue. Well, I think we've probably taken this just about as far as we can get. Thanks so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun discussion. Thanks, um, Greg. Uh, let's go back down the down the list here. If you just tell people where they can find you on the internet, Carlos? Carlos at Cisco.com. Yep. And people can get in contact with you there. Frank, you're all over the place. Well, Frank Prockners or FB at Cisco.com. That works as well. Okay. Shweta at Gmail or Cisco. Okay. You can find your name all over the... All three of you have got names all over the draft, so I've read them on and off over but, the... But even time. more important, if you kind of search for inbound OEM, you'll also find a GitHub site mm-hmm. uh, where you can find pointers to the drafts, the code, Open Daylight, Fido. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a bunch of uh, video recordings that we've done. So there is a YouTube channel for inbound OEM uh, with all the glory detail and, and demos that we've done, like you, you yep. mentioned the Comcast example, you mentioned the Facebook UDP pinger example. Mm. So we've done little demos for all of that that shows mm. the whole thing as a working system, even feeding in-band OEM information into Panda, so a, okay. a platform for network data analytics, another open source you like project. Panda? Of course we like Panda. We're good <laughs> we friends love of Panda. Panda. <laughs> and, um, I'm, be- so I'm beginning to get the hint that every- everybody likes Panda. You, you can piece the overall <laughs> system now together almost as an entire open source ecosystem. We don't ecosystem, have to rely on right? Grafana or something. We've actually got our own network-centric t- uh, display. You know, Everything together for you as a package. And Yeah, that's the thing I like about Panda is it's not like Grafana, which is built for something else and we just adapt it for networking. Panda seems to be a little bit networking-centric and I kind of like that, so... If you like it, I'm yep. all for it. And, of Thank course, so I'm much. Greg Farrow. Thanks for listening today. You can find out more about uh, Packet Pushers at our website at packetpushers.net. As always, if you've got feedback or questions or queries, you can email us at packetpushers at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget that we've started up a membership site. Um, there's lots of interesting information there. And thanks very much to Huawei for providing us with the financial support to attend IETF 99. Without them, we wouldn't have able to been here. As always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.